Well, good morning, everybody. I still can't taste anything. It's been a week now, and I can't taste anything. But hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've known Dugan uh, since I was born, the day I was born. Our parents are friends, so that's my testimony in a nutshell, is uh, that he's been my friend, and I've had to bear him for 36 years of my life. But no, I've, uh, I grew up with him and his family, love him, love this church, love what you guys are doing, uh, just really excited about how God's moving here in this place, how he's moved through COVID, how he's continuing to move now, and it's good to see a lot of faces here in the building. Uh, but I'm excited to be here. Just a little bit about myself. Um, I have a family. I'm a family man. I have a wife, Randy, and two kids. Uh, I have a picture of them, I believe. Um, the oldest on the right is Reed. He is seven, and the youngest is Chase. He's going to be five in July. Uh, and then that's me. I said my age already, and I won't say my wife's age. Um, but that is my family. Kids are great. They're also monsters, as most kids are, but I, I love them so much. Um, another uh, thing about me is that I think bumper stickers are really weird. That's a weird transition, I know. Uh, but I think not, not necessarily just like the idea of a bumper sticker, but what people choose to put on bumper stickers I think is super weird. Like you've all been behind somebody, and it's just amazing what people choose to put on there. And you're left without any context about this person to deduce a lot about them, right? And so I've, I've got some bumper stickers. They're just small phrases where we're left to kind of just deduce context about these people. So the first one, this person just said, I hate bumper stickers, which I'm like, e either they're ironic or stupid, or maybe both. I'm not sure. Uh, this next person said, don't lick doorknobs. Or yeah, don't lick doorknobs. It's just not safe anymore. Before COVID, I was licking every doorknob I saw. Now I'm like, that makes sense. I can't lick doorknobs anymore. Um, next one, I am one relationship away from having 30 cats. We don't know a lot about this person. They probably like cats, and they probably aren't good at dating. Um, and one more here. Um, this is a minivan. It says, I used to be cool. I used to be cool. I was actually behind Dugan in line at Starbucks. I took a picture of his minivan. I'm just kidding. Dugan never was cool. Uh, Christians also have them, too. You've seen the Christian ones. This one, uh, born to the second power. Okay. That person is probably a Christian and also a nerd, right? So born again for those of you who didn't catch up yet. Um, the next one, do you follow Jesus this close? This person might be a Christian, but also is very aggressive, very aggressive. <laughs> In case of a rapture, this car will be unmanned. All right, so we don't know a lot about this person. I don't know if they're post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib. I don't know, but uh, this last one's really funny. This person, what they tried to put is, honk if you love Jesus, Jesus saves. Honk if you love Jesus, 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 Jesus. Unfortunately, what they did put is, honk, Jesus, honk, if you saves, if you love, love, Jesus, 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 Jesus. <laughs> so again, we're not left with a lot here. Clearly, this person loves Jesus. They understand the word Jesus. They just don't understand a lot about sentence structuring. <laughs> but bumper stickers can be tricky because it's just a small group of words, one phrase, and we're left to deduce context about this person without anything else, no other context about their life. And context, as we know, is so, so important because without it, we can draw whatever conclusion that we want. And as many of us know, drawing conclusions without the whole story or all of the context can lead to a ton of misunderstandings. Now, here's why I bring all that up, is we can oftentimes find ourselves reading the Bible, reading God's Word with a bumper sticker mentality. 
just randomly kind of pulling out verses, just remembering verses without fully really understanding the context in which they were written. And taking a scripture alone can sometimes leave us void of what God's original intention was. So just quickly, before I get into it, a quick theological lesson, like a quick Bible study lesson. There's two ways that we can read God's word. The first one is through exegesis. The other is called through eisegesis. Now, exegesis means that you would read God's word, and the actual word means to pull out, to pull out of. And so to read God's word and then interpret what it's saying and pull the truth out of it. Now, that sounds obvious, but that's not always how people choose to read God's word. The other way that people read God's word, which is the wrong way to do it, is through eisegesis, which means that you see what you want to see. You see what you want to see. Like you have an idea maybe about who God is. Maybe you have an idea about the world around you, and then you look to God's word to kind of prove what you've already made up your mind about. Now, I've got a few really stupid examples of this. Okay, I, that's my disclosure right now. Umbrella of grace. These are very, very dumb, okay? But how you'd have an idea and you'd go to God's word to try to prove it. Let's say you believe that the earth is flat. It's not. It, it's okay if you believe that. It is not flat. But let's say you believe that the earth is flat. You've seen the pictures from space. You're like, nah, that's not, that's not real. You would go to God's word. You're like, I think it's flat. Here we go. Isaiah 11:12. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Hey, spheres don't have corners. Clearly, God is telling me that the earth is flat. Do you know there's people who believe this? There's like websites and stuff. Okay, you can talk to me afterwards if you don't understand. Um, Second one, you're like, I think that you should only wear 100% cotton. This is a common thing that I hear. Uh, You're like, I don't think blended shirts are wrong. You shouldn't have 50-50. Leviticus 19 says, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. (laughs) If you have a 50-50, if you have a tri-blend, you might just be going straight to hell. I don't know. (laughs) But... And this last one is such a common thing. You're, you're debating. You're like, should I become a sword swallower? Like, is that a thing that I'm supposed to? You're like, Revelation 19:15, coming out of his mouth, this is about Jesus, is a sharp sword. You're like, that's a sign. I'm supposed to be a sword swallower. If post-apocalyptic Jesus has a sword, I'm supposed to. Okay, I know. Those are stupid. I apologize ahead of time. I'm going to cut that last one because that one was stupid for the next service. Uh, <laughs> But here's the thing is we do this with a lot of things in our world. We do this with social issues. We do this with moral issues as we have an idea of what the world should be in our own minds or the world that we see around it. And we try to go to God's word and pull out little things to try to prove what we already think is true. So when reading God's word, what we want to do is look to the word and read it for what it is and then interpret it and pull out what the context is. And the first question we have to ask ourselves when reading God's word is, first of all, what is the context? We have to look at a few different things. We say, you know, we want to know who wrote this verse, right? To whom it was written to. What's the broader picture? What's going on around this verse? What happens before the verse? What happens after the verse? We want to understand the verse in the context in which it was written. And the second thing that we want to do is we want to use the Bible to interpret itself. We want to interpret Scripture with other Scripture. Because the best commentary on the Bible is actually the Bible itself. It's not that we read a little bit of the Bible and then we go read the Da Vinci Code and we're like, I don't know really what's what. No, no, you read the Bible and then you you look throughout the Bible to see if it supports the idea that you're kind of pulling out. 
So we look at the context, we interpret the Bible with the Bible, and the third thing we do is we look, how can we then apply that verse to our life? Because God's word, the Bible, is, is not just a text to be studied, it's letters to be lived out. It's God li- God's living and breathing word, and it transforms our lives. We're not just students of God's word, but we apply it, and we live it out every day in our life. And so we look to the context, we interpret scripture with scripture, and then we look, how can we apply that to our life? So with all of that in mind, that kind of crash course on Bible study, what I want to do is I want to look at one more bumper sticker this morning. And it says this, I was made for this, hashtag mom life, Jeremiah 29, 11. Now this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, is probably a verse that you've seen on somebody's family room wall. Maybe you've seen it tattooed on somebody's body. Maybe it's even been uh, on your grandma's pillow crocheted next to you as you've sat there and visited her. But here's the full verse. A lot of us know it, but here's Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now today, what I want to do is I want to just focus on this verse, a verse that many of us are familiar with, a very famous verse, a very inspirational verse, a verse that personally I have loved over the years. But I want to get a little bit vulnerable for a second and talk about how I have misused Jeremiah 29, 11, how I've ignored the context and just tried to Jesus this verse into what I want. And so over the years, I've believed, okay, God has a plan for me. You know, God's plan is this, and and he wants good for me. He doesn't want disaster in my life. And so I start to pray. I say, God, you have a plan for me, and I really would love to go to this college. And so I know you have a plan for me, so God, make that college a reality. Make that happen for me. God, bring me to that college that I want. And I graduate that college, and I say, God, you have a plan for me. You have an amazing, amazing plan for me. It's for good, for not disaster. And so, God, I need to get a job, and a thing that would not be disastrous would be like a six-figure income. So, God, please, you have a plan for me, and I think your plan, God, is to make it rain, uh, the Benjamins. And so, God, you have a plan for me. Make that happen. And, God, you know I've been driving a Ford Focus since I was like 16. And you have a plan for me, and I believe that plan is zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. And so, God, you have a plan for me. And then I got make, you start making money, driving a fast car, and you're like, God, you have a plan for me, and I've always wanted to get married, and I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to settle down. And so, God, bring that spouse to me, and God, you have a plan for me, and I think that plan is that she's above a seven and a half. So, God, make that plan happen. Bring her into my life. And then you get married, and then you have, you're like, we have a one-bedroom apartment. We need something that we can grow into. And God, your plan for me is a colonial with a pink roof, I think. So, God, make that happen. We need a house. We need a little bit more yard. We got the yard. God, you have a plan for me, and it's for good, for not disaster, and the average is like 1.9 kids. So God, we'll take two. We'll take two kids. That's fine. And Iron Man and Captain America would be great. A little sibling rivalry if you're into the Marvel movies. But God, you have a plan for me. Let's throw in a dog, God. That's a good plan. And God, through this whole thing, through the whole plan that you have for me, I just pray that, God, you would keep us all healthy, that there would never be any sickness, there would never be any injuries, because you have a plan for me. It's for good and for not any disaster in my life. And if I'm not careful in how I've misused Jeremiah 29, 11, is that I take God's word out of context. And what I do is I use it for what I desire, and I say, God, your plan, make it happen. God, make that happen. 
Now, what I don't want anybody to do here for a second is to feel bad for using this verse for strength or encouragement, for using Jeremiah 29, 11 to get you through seasons because God's word is breathing, it's living for a reason, and it can use people in all different situations, in all different walks of life. And there's a ton of people that have used Jeremiah 29, 11 to get through a season of life that was really tricky. It gave them hope in who God is and how much he loves us, which all of that is so, so true. But what I've done is I've used this verse as like a genie in a bottle type of phrase when it comes to God. And I've said, God, here's your plans for me. I hope you like it. Now, this isn't to say that God doesn't want good things for us. It's not to say that God doesn't want you to have a house and a car and job and prosperity and love and kids and on and on and on. He does. God cares for you. He cares for you so, so, so deeply. He loves you. But what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to take a look at Jeremiah 29, 11 in the context in which it was written. So first of all, Jeremiah 29.11 comes from the book of Jeremiah, which was written t- about who? Any guesses? Jeremiah, nice. We got a scholar in the front row. Uh, Jeremiah was written about Jeremiah. It's kind of Jeremiah's prophecies as well as kind of some context and some, some um, narrative about his life. And so our verse for today, Jeremiah 29.11 was actually not directed to an individual. Jeremiah 29, 11, first of all, was directed to a group of people, was directed to the Israelites as they found themselves in exile. And they were in exile for disobeying God. They were in exile and cast out for worshiping other gods. And so they started worshiping these other gods. In fact, in Jeremiah 7, you see that these people are worshiping the true God inside of the temple. And then right outside of the temple walls, there's a ton of people worshiping these false gods. And it's not that these people outside the walls are apathetic towards the one true God. They are actively pursuing these false gods to extreme points, to the, even the extreme point of child sacrifice to these false gods. So they are kind of all in for these false gods. So it's a group of people that is so closed off to God that they've fallen away from him and what they've done is allowed themselves to fall away from God. And in turn, what happens is God has now allowed them to be captured by the country to the north, Babylon. And because of their own wrongdoings, because of their own rebellion, they are now in exile from Babylon. And this is actually just a microcosm of the entire story of the Bible. Throughout the entire Bible, we see people loving God and then slowly drifting away from him and running from him and fleeing from him. But God over and over and over again pursuing his people, pursuing us, and then he pulls us back into his fold and then we love him all over again and then we start rebelling again. So this is where we find the Israelites is in this cycle of rebellion, falling from God, cast out and in exile because of their own mistakes, their own wrongdoing. And this is what is happening to and around the people for our verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, jumping back one chapter before our verse, I want to uh, read through a little bit of Jeremiah and talk through a little bit of Jeremiah 28. So what happens in the, the chapter before 29 is there's a showdown between these two prophets, the prophet of Hananiah and the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, as we know through the uh, 
vantage point of history, was a true prophet speaking on behalf of God. But then you have this guy, Hananiah, who claims to be speaking on behalf of God, but what he's really doing is just telling people what they want to hear to build his own fame, to build his own notoriety, and he's telling people whatever they want to hear, and so he's saying to these people exactly what they want so that he can become more and more famous. And as these Israelites are in exile, Hananiah is telling them, hey, this exile is only going to last about another two years. And they're thinking, man, that is so great. That's not that long. We can get through this. We can do anything for two years. Like, that is amazing, amazing news. And Jeremiah is kind of in the back, and he's listening to Hananiah say all this stuff, and he's like, that's not the message I've been getting from God. Like, does Hananiah have the wrong phone number? Is Hananiah getting catfished? Or what is happening here? And he's kind of in the back, and he, he ends up, like, calling out Hananiah. He's like, uh, Hananiah, that doesn't sound right. That's not the message I was getting. And because Hananiah is like this big shot and people love him, he ends up publicly humiliating Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is kind of like confused and he leaves and then God speaks to Jeremiah again and reiterates the, the things that he's been speaking to him and reaffirms that Hananiah is simply spreading this false good news. And then God tells Jeremiah that Hananiah is actually going to die that year. And seven months later... Hananiah dies. He's gone. Hananiah is dead because God does not like fake news. <laughs> and then the people start to realize, hey, maybe Hananiah wasn't right. And all of that happens right before Jeremiah 29. We have this rough situation. We've got tough times. We've got prophet drama. But the people are realizing, okay, maybe we should start listening to Jeremiah. And then we hear God through Jeremiah in chapter 29, starting in verse 4. This is Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. And so God speaks to his people who are in exile, a place where God has sent them, and he says, hey, hunker down. Marry, have kids, find spouses for those kids. Look for peace and prosperity right where you are under the Babylonian rule. He's saying, bloom where you're planted. Now, what they had wished that he had said was, hey, guys, Hananiah was actually wrong. It's all over. Pack up. We're going home. No more oppression. Freedom for everybody. No more captivity. But then Jeremiah drops the real bomb, and he says this in Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. And they're like, can we bring back Hananiah? 
Like, can we, can we dig him up? Can we, can we get that guy back from the dead? Like, I don't care if he was right or not. He was telling us things that made us happy. Seventy years, God? And then we see our verse for today. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. And so when we look at Jeremiah 29, 11 now, with context, using the scriptures around it to give it shape, to give it structure, it might look a little bit different now as we try to apply it to our lives. Because God was speaking to a group of people. He was speaking to his people in a time when they were exiled due to their own mistakes and their own bad choices. After years and years of rebellion, a group of people that were feeling like they were facing a lifetime of captivity, feeling like they were facing a lifetime of oppression, which, by the way, makes the hashtag mom life bumper sticker make a little bit more sense. Doesn't parenting feel like captivity sometimes? But what needs to be noted here is how kind God is, how good he is. Through this whole cycle, he doesn't shame them. He doesn't leave them and forget about them. He still promises them that he has plans for them. He still promises them that he loves them, that he's with them. And so the heart of Jeremiah 29, 11 is not that they would escape their situation, but that they would learn to thrive in it that they would learn to pursue God through it, that they would learn to fall in love with the Father all over again while they're in exile and learn that he has never left their side. But the danger of just plucking this verse out and applying it to our lives, the danger is that that we make it about us and we make ourselves the central character when God already has that role. And we make it about my plans. But the danger comes when God's plans and my plans don't line up. I try to declare Jeremiah 29, 11 to a bigger house or a nicer car or a raise at work or kids or a spouse or better grades in school. But here's where it gets really, really, really dangerous is what happens if it doesn't? What happens if we don't get the job, if we don't get the house, if we don't get the spouse, if we can't get pregnant, if we don't have the money, if we don't have the thing that we're hoping for in our box, in my plans? What happens if God doesn't bring healing in the way that you had hoped or prayed for? If we're simply pursuing a God of our plans, that's a false God if we're pursuing a God that gives us joy without pain or blessings without trial or prosperity without any bumps in the road, we're actually pursuing false good news. We're actually pursuing the prophecies of Hananiah, a false gospel. And it's very dangerous, and that's why, in my opinion, a lot of people end up straying and walking away from their faith. Because they say, well, God promised me, and then he didn't do what I wanted him to do. We say, I tithed, and I didn't get rich. I went to church every single week, and my kids still got sick. I prayed and prayed and prayed to God, and I'm still in the same situation. I'm still in the same place that I was nine months ago. What is going on? 
And now here's what I hope for you. From the bottom of my pastoral heart, and I think all the pastors here would say the same thing, is I hope from the bottom of my heart that you do find your spouse this year, that you do get pregnant this year, that you do find financial security and freedom. I hope you get the house or the car or the job. I hope that this year you finally have a breakthrough in healing for yourself or a loved one. But what happens if it doesn't come the way you hoped or the way you prayed? And we see that God probably felt the tension that you're probably feeling right now in your seat in the Israelites. And he knew what they were thinking as what you're probably thinking. And so look what he says to them right after Jeremiah 29, 11 and verses 12 through 13. He says, in those days, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. God promised the Israelites that he has a plan for them to rescue them in 70 years, which some would argue that that number 70 is like a literary number for a lifetime or a generation. And we see that God does deliver his people 67 years later. But this was a promise that many of them never would see on this side of eternity. It's why he encouraged them to get comfortable, to thrive in their current situation. But in that generation of captivity, in that generation of exile, God also promised them, if you pray, I will listen. If you search for me, you will find me. And so we find ourselves here in 2021, and we see a promise in Jeremiah that's still a promise that can apply to all of us. Because remember earlier how I talked about we can use scripture to interpret scripture and see if common themes rise at the top and things are supported by other scripture. All throughout the Bible, this is a promise that we see. It's something that is true. It's something that we can bank on, that God is still with us, that God still loves us, that he never has given up on us, and that if we search for him, we will find him. And his plans might not always line up with what we want, but he is there. And here's where all of this kind of comes together for us, Heartland. We find ourselves in situations oftentimes that feel like the Israelites do, don't we? In a situation that feels like there's little hope, but God has given each and every one of us hope through his promises. As God promised the Israelites in the verses right after Jeremiah 29, 11, he said, if you search for me, you will find me. Just as Jesus gives us the same hope, In the book of Luke, Luke 11, 9 through 10, Jesus talking here. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. God is there with us. No matter what path we find ourselves on, he's with us. He sees us. He sees you. He knows you. And his promise is not our plans coming to life. His promise is that he's with us. It's not always what we think is good. His promise doesn't always look like a house. It doesn't always look like a car. It doesn't always look like financial security. It doesn't always look like a spouse. It doesn't always look like kids. It doesn't even always look like health 
or protection. What God's promise is to us is if we diligently seek him, if we search his face, if we pray to him, he will listen. If we look for him, we will find him. That's God's promise to each and every one of us. His promise isn't the plans, but the one who has the plans. And for all of us post-Jesus, his promise is that we will find salvation in God's Son, Jesus. Because we live in a broken, damaged, sin-filled, messed-up world. We live in the 70 years that the Israelites were in. We live here. We live on earth. But that's not the end of the story. God knew that this was going to be difficult. As soon as Adam and Eve invited, invited sin into the world, God knew that it was going to be different. But he also knew that he loved you too much to let that be the end of your story. And so he sent his son Jesus here to this planet to die on a cross in your place so that you could live with God forever and eternity. So if you're here in the room and you have a Jeremiah 29, 11 tattoo, or you're maybe watching online and you're sitting at your grandma's next to a crocheted pillow, please do not rip that pillow in half. Please do not make an appointment to get that tattoo lasered off your body. Because this verse is still God's heart. His plan is for good. And it's through Jesus. His plan is not for disaster, it's for heaven. That's the foundation that God has promised us. His plan is for eternity. He desires for you to get to the end of your life and live with him in paradise. A place with no pain and suffering and scrutiny, no insecurity, no debt, no depression, no sickness, no injuries, no divorce, no more separation from him. So does God have a plan for your life? Is it a plan for good and not for disaster? For a future and a hope? Absolutely. Does it look like a house or a car or a spouse or a 401k? In my opinion, if we stop at any one of those things, what we're doing is we're shortchanging God because He's bigger than all that. God's as big as eternity and He's worth building our life around. Having faith not in a plan that we come up with, but the one who has promised that he is with us, that he will listen, and that's promised that we can find him. And so this morning, we're going to end with a song. And as we sing this song, what I want you to do is think about the creator of the universe, the one that loves you so much that has promised you that if you seek him, you will find him, that promises if you will pray, he will listen and sing to that God the God that is worth building our life around, not a plan that we come up with, but the one who loves us, the one who knows us. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the truth of Jeremiah, that you have a plan for us, God. It doesn't always look like what we think it should look like. It doesn't look like the things that we think should be in our plan, but God, it looks like you being there with us, it's a promise that if we pursue you, God, you will be there. God, thank you for listening when we pray, and thank you so much above all else. Thank you for your son, Jesus.
Thank you for a plan that didn't involve me being cast away and separated from you for eternity, but a plan that brought me back to you, Lord. Help us to remember that you are worth building our life around. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.